Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. All week long, we're focusing on our K-12 public schools, and today we're asking, who gets to choose? This hour, we'll explore the school choice movement in Iowa and the push toward privatization. I'll talk with educators from public and private schools, and we'll talk about possible implications of private school vouchers and charter schools for students with special needs. Finally, I'll talk with an education reporter in Michigan. The school choice movement is a couple of decades old there, and we'll take a look at how it has changed Michigan's schools. But first, IPR's own education reporter, Grant Gerlach, is here to help us understand the political forces behind this movement movement and what is actually being proposed. Grant, welcome. Hi. So ever since taking office, Governor Kim Reynolds has talked a lot about education in this state, and she seems to have uh, really honed her focus on public education and the changes that she would like to make to our public education system. Tell me a little bit more about her agenda and, and an overview of what she wants to do. Okay, well, she has really uh, adopted quite a a broad school choice agenda. Uh, For her, that includes a range of things. It includes uh, students being able to open enroll uh, widely. It includes um, charter schools, not just charter schools run by school districts, but uh, also independent of local school districts. And it includes uh, a voucher-style program that would allow the state to subsidize um, a student's private school tuition as well. So uh, the way she puts it is, um, and and other lawmakers who support her school choice agenda, is looking at it as parents being the ultimate form of local control and also um, that the money that is spent on education should follow the student and it should fund students, not systems. Those are a couple of different slogans you hear often. And she has uh, been pushing this for a couple of years. There are a lot of those changes that have actually been codified now into law. So tell me what has happened. Well, charter schools uh, passed in 2021. And so that was a law that expanded the state's charter school system. There there were charter schools in Iowa, but only within uh, or or created by local public school districts. What this law did was create a second way that a charter school could be created, and that was through what the law calls uh, a founding group. So this could be you know, a group outside of a local school district that um, puts uh, a plan together to open a charter school, and um, it, it wouldn't have to be tied to the local school board or anything like that. And uh, they could apply for a contract through the State Board of Education to have their, their school approved and, and to open up, and, the, and they would be paid based on the, the enrollment that they have per student. Uh, so that was quite a change that was passed a couple years ago. And then there have been uh, quite a few different changes to open enrollment uh, in the last couple of years as well. The, the main one, just this past legislative session, does away with the deadlines that previously existed for open enrollment. So it used to be that if you wanted to change districts, um, you had to apply by March, and then you could change the district by f- for the next school year. But now that deadline has has gone away, and 
students can apply to open enroll basically at any time during the school year, which is a big change from before as well. Now, I know a lot of Iowans are very concerned about school funding and how the school choice movement and laws that have been passed and possibly could be passed in the future impact funding. I think the charter schools are a really interesting thing to look at because, again, these are now, uh, they can be outside of a school district and they will receive state funding based on their per pupil spending. Mm -hmm. However, at least one of the new charter schools has received a big influx of state funding already, not based on the number of students that they have. Yeah, so I'll I'll give a little background on that. There have been two charter schools that have been approved under the the new law. One is at uh, in Hamburg, and it's uh, affiliated with the local public school district there. They didn't have a high school, so they opened up a charter high school. Um, then the other is called Choice Charter School, and it's an all online program, and it's designed to uh, to serve uh, students who dropped out of high school. They can do this online program and, and finish their diploma and get into career training. Um, that's the the charter school that received some extra funding from the State Department of Ed. Uh, so Choice Charter School got a, a million-dollar grant, basically, to, to get up and running uh, at the beginning of this school year. And that happened after it became clear that the, it, under the funding plan that was sort of put in place that uh, Choice Charter School wouldn't have all the money it needed to um, get all the staff in place and everything else it needed. Uh, and so what happened is the founder of Choice Charter School, Cynthia Knight, said when she reached a contract with the State Board of Ed, she believed that she would be paid based on her projected enrollment of 300 students. But at the beginning of the year, she had, I think, 60 enrolled, which is what she was going to be paid. And that wasn't enough for everything she had set up. So she reached this agreement with the Department of Ed to have this one-time additional funding of $1 million. And of course, I'm sure people will be watching to see how this develops in the future. You mentioned uh, Governor Reynolds talking about parental control, parental choice as being Mm -hmm. the ultimate local control. And of course, local control is a a phrase that we have associated with Iowa schools uh, really since the founding of Iowa's public schools. I noticed today that uh, at least a a quick perusal of the Iowa Department of Education website, it does not, uh, that phrase doesn't appear on their um, homepage anymore. And Hmm. it used to. Um, So, I mean, Governor Reynolds has had a very strong hand with making decisions and also proposing things to the legislature that result in decisions, taking some of that local control out of the hands of local school boards and local school districts. So does this feel like it really represents a, a major change in the philosophy of public education in Iowa? Oh, well, um, I, I would say Governor Reynolds definitely has a strong idea of, of what she would like the school system in Iowa to look like. She really would like it to include things uh, like uh, the scholarship accounts that she has proposed that would uh, provide funding for students to attend private schools. And that kind of mixture with uh, the open enrollment and and the public schools as well. I, I will say that she, she often includes a statement along the lines of, most of our kids go to public schools. Our public schools need to be well-supported and in good shape, and then goes on to propose what she believes needs to be in place on top of that. Um, So it is sort of a a different take on on public schools really being the the core of things, uh, 
but a different view of what else needs to be out there. All right. We only have a few minutes left. I want to take a look at the future because a lot of the things that Governor Reynolds has proposed have passed and and have become law. These vouchers for students to attend private schools, that has not passed. It has not become law. And she ran into some resistance from Republicans um, in the last two legislative sessions. Tell me how that has played out. Yeah, so the last two years, there has been a, uh, she calls them student-first scholarships. Those That proposal has gone forward through the Iowa Senate. It's passed in the Iowa Senate both years, but has failed to go through the Iowa House. That's even after open enrollment changes got through the Iowa House. Um, the charter schools got through the Iowa House. This voucher-style program has not made it through the Iowa House. So that's really where the sticking point has been. And it's not because of Democratic opposition, because they don't have enough uh, members to really control that. It's from uh, fellow Republican House members. And in particular, it's been uh, Republicans from rural districts. And part of what we understand is that their hesitation is that there aren't that many private schools in uh, in far-flung parts of rural Iowa. And so they don't really see the benefit for their constituents. They really want to focus on the, the, the health and quality of their local public schools. She changed the most recent um, proposal to try to get some more of them on board. That wasn't enough to do it. And so in this most recent election cycle, she's taken further steps to try to move the Iowa House in her direction. She uh, supported... Um, challengers to Republican incumbents who support her school choice agenda. And there were four incumbent Republicans who lost in the the primary races uh, to challengers who support her changes in school choice. So that, depending on how things go in November, that could impact what the makeup looks like in the Iowa House. Just by themselves, those races wouldn't be enough to um, totally turn the tide in her favor. But we'll have to see how it changes the debate, too, if, if other House Republicans see what happened to their former colleagues. That's a pretty unusual step for a governor to take to primary members of their own party or to support the primary members mm-hmm. of their own party. I mean, this is something that she obviously feels extremely passionate about and is working hard to push forward. Do we... This is a movement that we've seen in other states, and and we're going to talk about what we've seen develop in Michigan in the past, but there are other states that have been moving along this pathway ahead of Iowa. Do we know where these proposals, where these ideas are coming from? Well, I would say the most recent wave of this in Iowa is is tied in some ways more recently to um, the way education has become kind of a wedge issue. Uh, for Republicans. Um, I think it showed in the Virginia governor's race that bringing up um, education issues and and sort of tying them to culture war issues like uh, from masking to the way race and history are taught to book challenges, uh, opposition to transgender students' rights in schools, those kinds of things have become uh, wedge issues that Republicans have have been using in these political races, and including in Iowa. And it's become part of how Governor Reynolds talks about this issue, different than it was before. Um, I have an example of this. Here's, we're not going to have time to listen not to the have time example, to listen to but briefly summarize for us, Grant. <laughs> well, she talks about um, 
not only should parents have the ability to choose a different school that fits their student better academically, they should have the ability to choose a school that fits their beliefs and their values. And that represents a shift in how she has been talking about this issue and how it's changed and connects with how the rhetoric toward education has changed within her party as well. Grant Gerlach, thank you so much. You're welcome. IPR's education reporter, Grant Gerlach. This hour, we're talking about who gets to choose school choice in Iowa and the push toward privatization. In a moment, I'll talk with stakeholders in this debate. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. You're listening to an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. All week long, we're focusing on our K-12 public schools. Today, we're asking who gets to choose. We're exploring the school choice movement in Iowa and the push toward privatization. And now we're going to hear from some of the stakeholders in this debate. First up is Lori Knoll, the superintendent of the Fairfield Community School District. Hello, Lori. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. And just give us a little bit of background on uh, the Fairfield District, the district that that you're in charge of. Fairfield is in southeast Iowa. We have approximately 1,600 students. And uh, we are a rural area um, in the corner of the state. So let's talk about some of your thoughts about the, the school choice movement and this push toward privatization. I'm sure that everybody who works in any kind of school in the state of Iowa has been keeping their eye on this and, and looking pretty closely. I also know that the language, school choice language, um, can be somewhat loaded. So tell me a little bit about your thoughts about school choice for families in your district. Sure. Well, first of all, I always, when I speak with parents, I say, we want what is best for your child, and let's help make sure that that decision is made. So wherever that child does decide to go or the family chooses, we are there to support that person and and their decision. With that, they have so many choices that they can choose from. Uh, Many times they, they may go between having um, being homeschooled or independent um, choices on their own, or they might decide to transfer to another district within the area. Uh, So there are many choices that the families can choose, even in rural Iowa, that would accommodate so many of the options for them. And the Fairfield District is in kind of a unique position for a rural uh, district because you have a very strong private school uh, in your community that a lot of students in Fairfield attend. So that puts you in in kind of an unusual situation. But I would love to hear your thoughts about some of the the changes that have been made. I mean, open enrollment has become far easier. And I, I realize being in a rural area, open enrollment is not as easy for students in your area as it might be 
for people who, who live closer to a cluster of towns, a cluster of districts where you could move around a little more easily. But tell me uh, what your concerns are about open enrollment and, and moving students frequently. Sure. First of all, again, I put that student at the front and center when they are moving from district to district, um, having those changes, those relationships that they built in one area are not there in the next one. And so if there's that stagnant change all the, and they're moving, then you, you have that difficulty with the student being able to keep up with their education. So that's always in the front and center to, to think of that child first and what is best. Now, families can move within our area as well. We have several school districts that are close by that families do um, choose. They may go to one neighboring school for a year or two and then back to a different one. We've had some that have um, kind of made the circle around the area. And the impact that happens is on that financial part. And one of the things that you see is like we just had our deadline of October 1 for the enrollment count, that's what is then driving our funding. So if students are moving quite often within the school year, then that money, um, it's hard then to make sure that you have enough teachers in the classroom, that you are able to provide um, that space that is needed. Um, some neighboring schools have actually closed their open enrollment because they've had too many in and they do not have the space or the teaching staff for them to make sure that they are providing a, a good education. Well, the money follows the student, but it doesn't follow the student instantly. I mean, <laughs> students get counted yeah, once yeah, a year, right? Correct. And that's what makes it very difficult. And it makes it difficult on the hiring component. So if you do have students move in, you may have already had uh, hiring and now you're in the middle of the year and you are needing to add another teacher, that's very difficult. And in rural Iowa, the teacher shortage is definitely impacting how we are educating our students. So having this as another layer on top of that does make it very um, difficult for, for districts to make the best educational decisions for students at some point. Accessibility is a big part of this conversation in a couple of different ways. And again, since you're a rural district, um, that has to be part of the conversation, just the, the opportunity for students to get to a, a district, uh, whether they are open enrolling into a different district or attending a private school, um, getting Tra traveling those distances can be an incredible challenge for students, and, and that leaves it up to their parents quite often. Do you have concerns about that? We, we do, and we have, there's open enrollment spots. Um, if, a, if a family is a family of poverty, we would get them, we help pick them up at the, the point and get them into our district. Um, we have helped on that part. Again, it goes back to student first and what are those student needs. However, it does go back to, I feel that if they are living in the neighborhood, living in that community, the best support for that child is within their community so that the people are seeing them in the neighborhood, they're watching them play, and they're making those relationships within that neighborhood. So it's better for them in my opinion, to be um, where they can have that support. But the transportation 
can be difficult for families in driving, you know, 30 minutes to a school and in the weather um, can make it difficult for families or if it's a high school student traveling from one school to another district, um, that could be dangerous for kids on the road. Uh, the other big subject when it comes to accessibility are students with special needs. Of course, public schools are required by law to provide equal resources for students with special needs. Private schools are not required by law to do the same thing. Uh, what are your concerns about accessibility for th- these students uh, with some of the changes that have been proposed? Sure. When the students go to a private school, you're correct, they do not have to provide that. So the public schools pick that up and the public schools then provide the special education services uh, without that funding. So So even if the student is at a private school, the public schools are responsible? Yes. And that could be served in several different ways. Um, There's been some instances where you would go to the private school to provide the special education needs. Sometimes it can be in the home for the child with special needs or that um, child with special needs would come to the public school for that support and services. And so with rural schools, that is a problematic component because our taxpayers are the ones that are helping to pay for that, um, that funding that does not follow the child at that point. What other concerns do you have about this movement? I can see that um, with school choice, it, it is a lot of times, especially for families with special needs students, that the private school can choose that child or not. It is not necessarily the parent's choice if they want their child to go to that school. So it may be a, a school that they feel is the right religious belief for their child. However, that school does not have the the capability to support that child so then that child cannot go to that school. So it really comes down to private schools can choose um, which students that they they allow to come to their school, not necessarily the parent's choice. Lori Knoll, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Lori Knoll is the superintendent of the Fairfield Community School District. We're exploring the school choice movement and the push for privatization here in the state of Iowa. And I'm talking to some of the stakeholders in this debate. Next up is Tanya Apana, a secondary teacher and founder and head of school at Main Street School in Norwalk, a small private school in Norwalk. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. And just briefly, um, tell me a little bit about Main Street School. Main Street School has uh, been established as a private school for about the last 16 years. Um, And we pride ourselves on being um, a a small environment that can really accommodate uh, individual needs for our students. Um, We have multi-age classrooms, a lot of cross-curricular type of of work, uh, project-based learning. So you also work with students who who may not fall under that special needs descriptor, but you often work with students who have not met with success in the public school community, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Parents choose our school for various reasons, but it's definitely um, a percentage that um, are a little bit desperate to find something that will meet their child's needs, and they have tried other options, and they're just kind of struggling to find something that works. And for 
families who turn to Main Street School, uh, the the price is an important part of that discussion, I'm sure, for many families. What is tuition? Our tuition is 6900 for the year, annual tuition. And I do always feel like apologizing every time I, I talk to families. I'm like, I'm sorry that you have to pay for this. Um, but it is necessary to, to be able to run a school. So when you listen to the debate about school choice in Iowa, the possibility of private school vouchers for students who need to or want to move out of the public schools. What's your reaction? It's a real mixed bag here. Um, There are definitely about one third of our student population um, gets scholarship to attend our school. And these are families that would definitely benefit. Um, However, part as as I read the bill, our current families would not benefit from this because you need to be have been enrolled in a public system previous to applying, and so our current families are not enrolled in, in public systems. Um, so I think there would be a bit of like a, a trickling effect, almost using it as a um, a recruitment tool to, to get new families in, um, and I think it would benefit uh are uh, our, our families that have a financial need, and, and we do have families that we turn away because they cannot afford to pay um, for the tuition, it, it would definitely benefit them. And, and when they're just, you know, desperate to find a scenario that works for their child, you know, an individualized typed uh, program, then, you know, it, it feels like it would uh, really work for those families. So you have a very small school, 32 students um, from preschool to eighth grade. Do you think that if um, the bill that uh, Governor Reynolds has proposed gets passed, do you think that this is an opportunity for your school to grow? I I know that's a complicated thing for a school to grow, but... Yeah, you know, I think there is opportunity there. Like I said, I think it would be more of a trickling effect because it would not affect the current families um, other than kindergartners coming in. Um, And so I think it would be kind of a slower process. It wouldn't be a windfall type thing. Um, I think anything we can do to allow more accessibility for families to find what is going to meet their child's needs is a benefit. Um, I, I have some concerns as to, you know, nothing is black and white. Everything you have to weigh the benefits with the costs. And, and I do think there has to be some caution. Um, public money has to be followed up with accountability. And, and I'm not sure I'm cl- it's clear to me what the expectations for private schools receiving this funding would be. And, and that's a that private schools are governed in a very different way than public schools. Of course, we all know about school boards and we all know about school board elections and, and public input. Um, private schools govern themselves. And of course, you know, you have created a school that aligns with uh, your values and you feel really provides a, a specific need and an opportunity to students who are not thriving in public schools. But that that bothers you to think about the possibility that, that we may not know what's going on inside these schools that are receiving public money? Absolutely, because ultimately, um, all educators just want to have excellent education for, for children. Um, and so I think, 
I think it's kind of the unknown and just knowing how sometimes the gears of government works <laughs> that I feel like um, there's, there's just more questions in my head about what this would look like. You have created a school, a unique school in Iowa. Does the charter school movement excite you, the the opportunity that maybe others could create schools that might meet students' needs in the ways that your school does? Yes, yes. Anything that expands opportunities. Um, We like to say that our public schools can meet the needs of everyone, and they try really hard to. But it's just impossible to meet the needs in any one entity. And so anything that expands opportunity and choices for students is nothing but a benefit. Um, now, how you make it work is is a question that, you know, can be tackled for a thousand years <laughs> because I think there's, there's a lot to that. But um, I'm all for, I think, the more choice we can have for our students, um, the easier it's going to be for families to find the right fit. Have you worked in the public schools in the past? Absolutely. I was a high school science teacher. And what made you leave? Mm. Um, I, 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 I was teaching a high school science class, and I'd see 120 students come through my door a day. I could see what the students needed, but I was really restricted in the realm of what I could do for them. Um, by the curriculum I had to get through, by the timing. And so um, my desire was to find a, a way that I could teach. Um, the creation of the school was very based on, it was pretty selfish, of I want to teach in this manner, and then I wanted my children to be educated in this manner. And so it's a much freer way um, that you can meet the needs of students uh, by by taking curricular subjects and mixing them together, doing project-based learning, um, really following the student with what their passions are, what their skills are, and then you work in um, their, their, their challenges in a way that you teach them how to overcome them. And so when you can get that much larger dynamic in your curriculum, it's, it's just such a much more rewarding feeling for me. Tanya, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Tanya Apana is a secondary teacher, founder, and head of school at Main Street School in Norwalk, a small private school in Norwalk. This hour, we are exploring the school choice movement in Iowa, pushed toward privatization by some. And I'm talking with some of the stakeholders in this debate. I'll continue talking with uh, stakeholders in this debate in a moment. And then we're going to travel to Michigan because the school choice movement is far older in the state of Michigan. We'll take a look at how this uh, very successful movement in Michigan has transformed education in some ways, some good, some bad, in the state of Michigan in a few minutes. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio.
This is Iowa Week, and school is in session. All week long, we'll be focusing on our K-12 public schools. And today, we're asking, who gets to choose? We're exploring the school choice movement in Iowa and the push toward privatization. I've been talking to some of the stakeholders. And of course, access is a big question when it comes to the privatization of education. Public schools are required by law to serve all students. Private schools don't have the same requirements, although, of course, some private schools do serve students with special needs. My next guest is Karen Thompson, Executive Director of ASK, that stands for Access for Special Kids Resource Center, a parent training information and advocacy center for families of children with special needs across the state of Iowa. Karen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And as uh, someone who works with parents who have children with special needs, as a parent whose children also have special needs, I mean, this is something that I'm sure you have been paying a lot of attention to and thinking very hard about. Uh, Give me some of the concerns that you have when you look at the the school choice movement. Yes. So um, in in, as a parent training and information center for the state of Iowa, you know, we represent the voice of families and what we hear across the state. And um, I would say that the parents that we hear from are fairly equally balanced. There are those who are very concerned about this and the conversations that you've been having uh, prior to me or other speakers talking about the responsibility to be clear and transparent in your data, how well you're doing at serving students, how well they're doing at progressing, um, the cost factor and what that will remove from the public schools who still have to serve the kids with disabilities, whether that be they're traveling to um, the private school or having the child uh, leave the the private school for a while and go back to the public school to receive whatever service that um, they need to receive for their special education services. Um, I would say those are some of the kinds of concerns. Um, you know, will the supports and services still be available for their children? What will transportation look like? Um, will the schools that are serving children for particular areas of the state really be centered within that state, that area in the state, whether it's rural or if it's urban, there might be, um, I've recently heard of a couple of schools that are interested in serving some inner city kids, but having their schools based in suburbs. Well, that means the kids need to be bused to those areas. That takes time away from family. It takes time away from potential opportunities to work. And it also means that you can only serve the number of kids that you have enough bus seats for um, to bus the kids to the school. So we hear those kinds of concerns, but we also hear positives. Well, and let's talk about the positives, too, because, of course, uh, special education is a unique field. There is so much diversity in the needs of children, of students who are served by special education teachers and uh, the classrooms. You know, there, there can be some that are very small classrooms. There can be some that are very large classrooms. There can be districts where they can't hire the paraeducators that they need to be aides to the children. There are so many different challenges in this. And there are some private schools that cater to students with special needs in other states. So are there some parents who are excited about these possibilities? Yes, there very much are. And for all of the reasons that you just stated, Um, you know, there are some kids who flourish in very small classrooms with very targeted interventions that are wrapped around them. Some public schools do great at that. And for some parents, they're looking for other options that may serve them 
in a way that they feel is better. Have you felt like the the pandemic has really exacerbated the, I guess, the stress and the needs of these families? Oh, definitely. Um, We see um, a lot of issues on the family front with, you know, just extreme overwhelmedness. Gaps for all kids are, of course, larger. They're learning gaps um, from what they experienced during pandemic. For all kids, we're seeing increased um, behavior and mental health needs. And so, of course, that's just more exasperated for the children who um, already came into the pandemic with some sort of diagnosis where those types of things were impacted for them. We're also seeing more schools opt toward either shortened school day or um, continued virtual learning environments for children who have challenges where that might not be what the child really needs. That might be what is um, something that the school feels is best. We do know that there are private schools who will not accept a child who has special needs. The cost of serving students with special needs can be prohibitive. The cost of serving all students can be prohibitive. And when I think about what some of the private school tuitions are, and I say to myself, what could we do in the public school setting if we provided that same tuition amount for every student? Um, How would public school look different? And so I think that's something for us to, uh, you know, definitely keep in mind. Um, Kids, all kids deserve an education. We know that our future in the United States is better when we move all children toward becoming contributing citizens and taxpayers in their future. And so it is to the betterment of all that we pay attention to how we continue to include and serve and educate kids who need special education services. I was one of those kids once upon a time. And my prognosis was don't plan to send her to college. She can't do it. It's a good thing the educators and my parents who were involved with my needs early on in school um, didn't listen to that. And they all worked together. And by the time I was in sixth grade, I was exiting special education. I went to college. Obviously, I'm a contributing member of society and I pay my taxes and do not rely on public assistance at this point in my life and and haven't in my adult life. That's the case for many of our youngsters, um, but it would be easy for us to take some quick steps backwards in that way, and that's going to be more expensive in the long run. So it needs to be a part of the considerations and conversations up front. Karen, thank you so much. You're welcome. Karen Thompson is executive director of Ask Resource Center, a parent training information and advocacy center for families of children with special needs across the state of Iowa. And of course, this is Iowa week, but we're going to close out the hour with a focus on Michigan. The school choice movement started a couple of decades ago in Michigan and has transformed the educational landscape in the state. Michigan is not Iowa, but there are useful parallels in this conversation. And Lori Higgins is bureau chief of Chalkbeat Detroit. She's done extensive reporting on education in Michigan, and she's with us now. Hello, Lori. Hello, Charity. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And by extensive reporting, uh, very extensive reporting. So in the 10 minutes that we have together, we're not going to cover a whole lot of of what you have learned about schools in Michigan. For people who aren't familiar with uh, the history of education in Michigan, give us a little snippet of, of the school choice movement that really gained a lot of power in Michigan. Sure. So the charter school movement began in the mid-90s. So did a parallel um, uh, uh, push to uh, allow uh, schools a choice program so that 
parents could choose what district to send their kid to um, as long as that district was open to the choice program. Um, to date now, we have 300 charter schools, about 300 charter schools in Michigan. Uh, and that number has been pretty stable for the last uh, four or five years. Uh, so we're not seeing a huge increase. We're seeing, you know, new charter schools opening every year, but we're also seeing charter schools close. Um, charter schools have probably had the biggest impact, but School of Choice has as well. Uh, but I'm going to talk a little bit about charter schools. Um, they began out of this uh, sort of notion that uh, it was a, that this would be a grassroots movement, that we would be providing, you know, quality options to parents. These schools would succeed, and if they didn't, they would close or parents parents would vote with their feet. They would leave these schools and, and, and sort of cripple those schools if that, that were unsuccessful. Um, the, the thought was also that, you know, removing elected school boards, removing sort of a centralized um, bureaucracy and, and, and removing, you know, powerful unions would, would make a huge difference. Um, and, and, and there would be innovation in these charter schools. That, that was what people thought, you know, when the charter school movement began in Michigan in the mid-90s. And I will say now, uh, gosh, almost 30 years into it, um, the, the reality has been quite different. Um, there are, you know, some really successful charter schools in the state. Uh, there are also some, um, a lot of struggling charter schools in the state. It is really, it's, it is really difficult to actually start a charter school. It's very expensive. Michigan doesn't provide any, uh, building money and, and that can be, uh, something that precludes people from actually starting a charter school. And the reason I mention that is because Michigan has a large number of charter schools that are operated by a for-profit company. Um, and, and that means uh, a, a company that will handle all the management of the school or they will handle certain aspects of the management, such as human resources or, or the finances of the school. Um, Michigan has a, a, a disproportionate number of charter schools that are operated by for-profit companies. That has been um, a real sticking issue for um, a lot of Democrats in the state who feel that, that for-profit um, for-profit nature should not be a part of, you know, the public school system, um, but it is. Um, and and as far as the impact of charter schools in Michigan, I, I can speak most specifically about Detroit because the, the a, a larger percentage of charter schools in Michigan are located in Detroit or in, in the suburban communities surrounding Detroit where they attract Detroit students. And more than half of the school-age kids in the city of Detroit actually attend charter schools. Um, since charter schools became part of the landscape, enrollment in the city school district has plummeted. They've closed a lot of schools. They've been under, they were under emergency management or under some sort of, some form of state control for a number of years. Can we tie all that to charter schools? Probably not. Um, obviously, a lot of charter schools opened. They took students. However, you know, there were other issues that were at play in the Detroit school district. It's a troubled school district. It is. Um, you know, one of the worst performing on the rigorous uh, national exam. So the impact has been, um, we're seeing, you know, in, in Detroit, charter schools are performing slightly better than the Detroit school district is performing, which um, could be bring bragging rights, right? You right. Know, you say, like, they're outperforming, they're outperforming charter schools that were the public schools or the traditional public schools in the city. However, when the traditional public schools are performing really, really low, being slightly better is not so great. 
So, and, and we're talking on average, they're performing slightly better. So there are some charter schools in the city that are performing worse than the school district. And there are some that are performing really, really well. Um, and there's no, um, and there's a lot of in between, of course. Right, right. Um, and there, there are so many, so many things to talk about here, but I'm, I'm going to try to break it down a little bit. I mean, one of the, yeah. the concerns that um, Lori Knoll, superintendent of the Fairfield Community School District, mentioned earlier would be the lack of transparency with private schools and charter schools, that is something that you have definitely seen in Michigan is this lack of transparency um, about how things operate in the schools, right? Absolutely. And and that was one of the reasons that I mentioned that the fact that Michigan has a lot of for-profit run charter schools. Um, once the public money goes into the hands of the for-profit company, the public has no idea how that money is being spent. Um, they, and I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, I sent a Freedom of Information Act request out to every school district in Wayne County, which is where Detroit is located. And I asked for something really simple, something that we've asked as a school district many, many times, which is their payroll for the month of, I believe it was the month of February 2019. Uh, most of the school districts responded. Um, a lot of the charter schools responded by saying, we do not employ people. Uh, we do not have any employees. <laughs> and the reason that I know it sounds weird, right? Um, and the reason they say that is because a lot of them have a for, for-profit human resources company that actually employs the uh, employees. So the charter school itself doesn't employ them. The company does. And so you cannot find out any information about those employees if you submit a freedom, a freedom of information, a freedom Ah, Freedom of Information Act request. Wow. Um, Okay. So, so again, so much to talk about here. Um, Do you also see students moving from school to school a lot? That has been an issue, particularly in Detroit, because of the, um, you know, there are so many schools in the city. Um, So many of them are struggling and parents are um, trying to find the best option for their kids. And so they are moving kids you know, from school to school to school, hoping to find that right school for their kid. Um, They're not always focused on academics. They're focused on other things like safety. Um, But yes, we are seeing, I don't, this is not necessarily happening across the state, but it is definitely happening in the city of Detroit. Well, and I know I have friends who live in Grand Rapids, for example, and I remember um, them going through the process of applying to different charter schools in the area. So there's also this system where you can choose the school that you want your child to attend, but they don't necessarily have room or want to take your child. It gets pretty competitive, doesn't it? Um, absolutely. And and that is, you know, the charter movement, but also the school of choice movement in Michigan, where, um, you know, you can apply to a school if they don't have room, they don't have to take you. Um, the, the law requires for charter schools that they have to run a lottery if there are more people applying than they have actual seats available. Um, and, and the same occurs with the school of choice program. So if someone in Detroit wants to go to, say, the Royal Oak School District, which, you know, is just north of, of Detroit, uh, and Royal Oak has, you know, too many openings um, or not enough openings, and they can do a lottery. But also Royal Oak could say, I'm not open. I'm not taking students from other counties. I'm only taking students from our county. And so Detroit students would be left uh, without a real option for 
um, getting their getting into some schools. So we only have about a minute left, and I want to ask you, I know that, you know, we talked earlier about our governor talking about people choosing schools that align more with their values and needs. We talked about access for students with special needs, and I know that your reporting has shown that charter schools have fewer students with special needs, but we're not we're not going to have time to dig into that. But tell me in 30 seconds, has has this movement damaged the public schools in Michigan? I I, that, I don't know that that's a question that I can fully answer. I think that uh, the answer is going to be different depending on who you ask. Um, I think that the charter school advocates will say that they have definitely added to the education system in Michigan. They have you know forced traditional public schools to provide more options to do things that charter schools were doing that were drawing parents. But I think if you ask a public, a traditional public school advocate about this, they will say that charter schools have absolutely damaged, um, you know, the, the school system overall. Lori Higgins, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Lori Higgins is Bureau Chief of Chalkbeat Detroit. We've been talking about the school choice movement in Michigan, which is several decades old as we look at school choice movements in the state of Iowa as well. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio.